But in the, I discovered the hard way that in the social sciences, uh, you better stick to what they want to believe, everybody. It's a cabal kind of a thing. Uh, and that may be because uh, they do not have verifiability of theories. It's not the same thing as hard sciences. And since the theories are not verifiable, you follow what's uh, the general view. And therefore, uh, it's easy to become controversial. Uh, when you disagree with the prevailing view, you call controversial. Much of what I have done disrupts the uh, views on Indian civilization, Indian culture, Indian thought from the social sciences which tend to be invariably Western. Uh, I, I haven't come across a good social sciences model. I know TN Madan, I know those kind of people who are Indians and it's often felt that they are coming up with an alternative Indian social model. I haven't seen a robust, genuinely Indian social model uh, because they're pretty much influenced by Western models of Indian society. Data mining is a very powerful weapon nowadays uh, to, uh, you know, to intervene in a society. Social intervention, social infiltration, political interventions, all of that you can do with more data mining. And this data trains your algorithms. These artificial intelligence runs on algorithms that keep becoming smarter. There is DEI.AI. Uh, which has come about. So this is an AI algorithm that is everything about diversity, equity and inclusion. And very soon, I'm sure they will train these algorithms to talk about caste as well, because this DEI algorithm is based on critical race theory. And soon you have to feed in um, critical caste theory. And, uh, and then you know the floodgates will open. They divide philanthropy in two parts, rights versus services. And all the Indians somehow seem to be into annadanam and to run schools and build toilets and, and girl-child education and things like that. And this is a problem. They don't want people to be giving <clears throat> food and healthcare and education as services. How do we convert that? Because again, FCRA is clamping down. How do we use that funding to, to move from services into human rights? How do we make the Indian donor move from giving services into human rights? So this is a big you know, project with a lot of discussion. And how do we change that? I take pleasure to introduce Dr. Vijay Viswanathan, a Wharton Business School graduate. She has rich experience as a global corporate strategist. As is evident from the books she co-authored, she has a unique insights. As a student of Dayanand Saraswati School, she is a Vedanta scholar, a rare kind that we find these days in public affairs, now engaged in educational reforms. What else do you need to be to make sense today? I would uh, request Dr. Kathikeyan, another eminent uh, public affairs leader, of the country and who has been in many different fields, not one what he was known in his profession, but many of his achievements and involvements, engagements around the world. Perhaps we need to talk about it later, but at the moment I request uh, Dr. Rupa again to introduce Rajivji. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. 
I certainly wish there were more folks to listen to this because I think they would be in for a treat. So first of all, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend Rajiv. Um, he is a trained physicist and then later on became a computer scientist. Uh, and then um, after a very successful stint in the corporate world, uh, he turned to entrepreneurship, founded many IT companies and uh, in about 20 countries, I believe. And his specialization was in uh, artificial intelligence. And this is back in the 1970s. So um, after this, what was, I think I met him around that time when after having very successful stint at all this, he had a complete change of uh, mindsets uh, and decided to go into giving back to the society, to the community. And he founded the, a nonprofit called the Infinity Foundation. And the Infinity Foundation came up, this was, I believe, the first piece of work, 14 volumes on um, India's uh, contribution to science and technology. That is amazing. This is something typically government should be doing for the country, but this is the uh, task that he took. And then after that, of course, he, uh, and this was in Princeton, uh, New Jersey, where he founded the Infinity Foundation. Then he uh, has obviously authored many, many uh, books. All of you are aware of this. Many of them are bestsellers. And uh, his latest book um, on artificial intelligence is titled uh, artificial, artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power in Five Battlegrounds. So this would be very, very interesting for folks to read about. So he has, Rajiv has disrupted the mainstream thought process. I mean, that's not an understatement, that really is true. And um, sometimes I feel it's more for um, provoking people to think. He has disrupted it and making people think about uh, subjects that were considered, uh, you know, almost taboo at one point. People will not speak about it, but now he has brought this up in the mainstream now and it provides a fresh position and that is certainly very provocative. He is, I can say he's a voracious reader and what is more amazing is he is able to retain what he reads. A lot of us read but we thought but he remembers everything so he'd be ready to debate anybody anytime. My, uh, there's so much to say about him but what I would uh, request you all to do is to read about him and the work that he does in Infinity Foundation by going to his uh, website. So, thank you all. Thank you. Namaskaram, good evening. Good afternoon to all of you. I am here by accident or chance, actually, because I heard uh, uh, the participation of Mr. Rajiv Malhotra. And of course, I had not known Vijay Vishwanath earlier. I had the privilege of knowing him for decades earlier. He's a brilliant mind. So much contribution he has made to about our civilization, to our culture. So much of a man of great wisdom and courage. Like um, Bhaskar also has been doing a lot of things, you know, very courageously putting forward the health of the society, Transparency International. Now he's focusing on the problems for the farmers, rural areas now. So he mentioned to me the other day, I had come home. I said, yes, definitely, I'll come. Today is a busy day for me. 
to make a commitment, I honor it. Just to learn. No, I don't say I contribute anything. I attend particularly. I said I have to be leave at four o'clock, but I want to have the present pleasure of meeting him after some several years, Mr. Rajiv. Yeah, and also heard about Vijayaji, and it's a privilege. So I don't want to say anything more than that because we have been tired of each, you know, all the time learning about our in strengths, India strengths, and then what we have achieved. Our but it's nice to hear from an insensitive mind, like Mr. Rajiv, what is the vulnerabilities and the root causes. He has written prolifically. I can't say I've written everything, but it's a great contribution to his books and uh, enormous uh, sacrifice of his time and energy and the resources. They are a huge contribution. So he said, Rao said, you proceed over. I said, what do you proceed over? I know nothing about the subject except, you know, any tone of his, uh, because I'm here, like all of you, I'm waiting. I'm only disappointed about the crowd and the timing. I told him, I said, such eminent speakers, we should have got an evening slot, but maybe difficult to get time. I myself have been organizing, I bought a little foundation called Foundation for Peace, Harmony and Good Governance. I must have done about 150 episodes in IAC alone, last 15, 20 years. Um, people from all walks of life, like Dr. Kalam and scientists, and uh, bureaucrats, jurists, and eminent uh, spiritual masters and of various religions and all that. So I insist on always this evening program. And uh, then you have 200, 300 people. Plus we used to also put it on the website also. But anyhow, uh, eminent person, people have heard him all right. But always he comes out with newer ideas. And we, we, India needs such a courageous views, you know. Not only new ideas, insistent ideas, the courage. People know a lot, but people don't have the courage to talk. You know, you know, you have to be true to your conscience and say, share your thoughts. That's the way you really make contribution. And they badly need such eminent, you know, thinkers, you know, sharing ideas so that people uh, really learn how to think and talk about it and all that. And so I, I want to, as much as possible, I want to listen to them. Vulnerabilities in the root causes. Thank you, Vijayaji, for being here. I know you are a brilliant person, except that I don't know much about you. Any of you will hear you now. Thank you very much. Well, Namaskar and uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for organizing this and a wonderful introduction from somebody, you know, who knew me when I was like 18, uh, studying physics in Delhi University. So a lot of uh, my way of approaching has to do with training in the hard sciences because you question everything and it's not a matter of opinion but you have to be able to demonstrate with evidence and there's nothing wrong or controversial if you question somebody else no matter how big shot he might be in fact you are encouraged to do that and my first the first half of my life was uh, applying science and technology making money and those kind of things and then the last 30 years has been uh, nothing to do with hard sciences except for personal interest but more to do with culture, civilization, uh, political thought, spiritual thought, history, what you might call social sciences. So I am not a trained social scientist, but as a trained physicist and computer scientist, I apply my logic to understand society. Uh, and so therefore, 
starting with first principles of logic, I come up with conclusions. And I have read a lot because I find that most social scientists I've talked to, they tend to sort of stick to a consensus view. And the consensus view is not necessarily empirically verified, but it happens to be the opinions of the thought leaders. The lead, there, is a, there are some opinion leaders and they feel a certain way. And so that becomes the consensus. And then that becomes embedded in the politics and in, of the day. And, uh, and, and so it's very hard to refute that. Uh, in, in physics, you could write a paper on uh, disagreeing with some, maybe the most famous theory of somebody. And you know, the professor will look at it. And will, if, if, uh, even if there is some merit, they will give you credit for that. But in the, I discovered the hard way that in the social sciences, uh, you better stick to what they want to believe, everybody. It's a cabal kind of a thing. Uh, and that may be because uh, they do not have verifiability of theories. It's not the same thing as hard sciences. And since the theories are not verifiable, you follow what's uh, the general view. And therefore, uh, it's easy to become controversial. Uh, when you disagree with the prevailing view, you're called controversial. In physics, it's a good thing because if you're a disruptor, I, in fact, uh, uh, one of the titles of my book, I was going to put in, in the byline, a disruption of, and the guy in the editor came and said, no, 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 it'll be scary, don't disrupt and all. I said, but I come from, in technology, if you're a disruptor, it's a good thing. I mean, it's considered like, if, you, if you're not a disruptor, then it means you're boring. You're just saying nothing innovative. Who want to fund you? So uh, this is the big difference. It's a, so first point I'm making is there's a, there's a difference in those who are trained in the social sciences and those who are trained in the heart sciences in their attitude and their at approach to things. That's, uh, that's uh, an important uh, difference that I, I uh, f figured out the hard way. A lot of things that would be considered fantastic uh, in my scientific career are not, that approach is not considered, uh, you know, respect, respectful. You have to pay respect to the big leaders and homage to them and so on. And then your career moves forward. So, um, I, will, I will say that the, the topic, uh, much of what I have done disrupts the uh, views on Indian civilization, Indian culture, Indian thought from the social sciences which tend to be invariably Western. Uh, I, I haven't come across a good social sciences model. I know TN Madan, I know those kind of people who are Indians and it's often felt that they are coming up with an alternative Indian social model. I haven't seen a robust, genuinely Indian social model uh, because they're pretty much influenced by Western models of Indian society. So I have a problem with that, with, with applying Western models to Indian society. I call it Western universalism, which means the view that the experience of the West is universal. So what happened in their history, in their geography, in Europe uh, is a template uh, to uh, study everybody and all cultures should be understood, should adopt that method of reasoning. Often the Westerners in the colonial era used to blatantly say that uh, past is your present. So you are like we used to be and our present is your future. So uh, you have to become like we are. And this is very commonly said. And Hegel came up with this whole idea like there's a, imagine like a train or a wagon and the West is the engine driving it. And then the rest of the civilizations are being pulled forward like a big favor to them. And he said that uh, the Native Americans aren't on the wagon. So if you genocide them pretty much, in, he didn't say it in so many words, 
But if you genocide them or are very rough on them, it's okay because they're like animals almost. He was very racist. And as far as the blacks are concerned, they need to be with rough, tough, they need to be civilized uh, for their own good. But Indians and Chinese have more hope than the other non-Westerners uh, because they have the potential of becoming like the West. So this is a very racist view. And yet you see that such people became the pillars of Western thought. You, you study Western philosophy, social theory, you will see Kant and Hegel and these kind of people. And then, and so I, I, I've studied all of that. I studied, I live in Princeton, so I studied among the best uh, faculty in th these kinds of subjects and always looked at it from my own point of view because I have not, nothing to gain. I'm not trying to impress anybody, get grades, get a job, get a tenure, I couldn't care less. So I'm looking at it critically and invariably having a lot of arguments with these, with these people. So um, that's kind of a, just, just to give you a little background about myself and my engagement with the social sciences. Uh, when my foundation started, we didn't start out saying let's fight with people. We started out by saying let's give grants to those who study India and I picked Harvard and let's give them grants and make sure that they're studying it nicely, properly, it'll be good for us. And after 10 years and giving away many millions of dollars of hard-earned money, what I concluded was that they're not going to do justice because they have a cabal, they have a peer group and they are stuck in a certain framework and within that framework they'll manipulate, there'll be a little bit flexibility but they're not going to break that framework. So after we funded the Indology Conference. Indology is a study of India at Harvard for many years. We funded visiting professors to study Indian culture, Indian spirituality, Indian religions for many years and many various other things. And there, after doing all of that, I actually started, I was more into criticizing the work done. Uh, not happy to write a check and then get some selfies and photographs with deans and that's what they thought a donor should do. Uh, a philanthropist should just stay out of the content, just give them the money and leave them alone and that's not how I'm, my nature is. So I parted company with them and uh, became a critic because I learned a lot of things that I felt were incorrect and not even honest. Uh, and I started uh, blowing the whistle and exposing that. And that started my own career as an author and that's how I've been for ever since. Now today's uh, topic is uh, what are the issues, what are some of the challenges, the vulnerabilities, uh, what are some of the tectonic forces that are threatening and undermining India uh, and what might we do, how do we face it and how could we overcome these. Uh, so I want to talk to you about that. One of my earlier books was called Breaking India, which was a similar idea. But in those days, the Breaking India was uh, these forces, there were forces working on the poor, less educated, vulnerable villagers. So it could be Maoists, it could be uh, Dravidian fault lines in the winterlands of Tamil Nadu, it could be Christian missionaries. Uh, it, it was not people going to after the elite. They were not going after the people in government or in uh, industry or kids of elites, elite people. But now there is a Breaking India 2.0, which I'm now talking about, which is uh, going after the people at the top of the pyramid in India, uh, whether it is the brightest students who've gone to the West, whether it is students in places like Ashoka University where you pay, you know, huge number of lakhs to get your kids there, so it is obviously for elite people, uh, whether it is Niti Aayog, whether it is the ministry people, 
media people, industry. So these are some of the elite spaces uh, which are now being uh, uh, which are now being taken over by the kind of influence which I call is breaking India. So uh, the, the latest study we've done looks at Harvard University because of its big brand name and its big clout uh, among the elites. It, it doesn't have any clout with villagers. If Harvard if Harvard went around uh, bragging and boasting and throwing its weight in the villages, people would say, who the hell are you? Nobody would know, know about them. But if you were to tell this to some top level people in any part of Indian society, uh, they will be in awe. So the use of Harvard is very, coincides with the target of elitists, elitists that are being now uh, colonized in, in some ways. And this uh, led us to study what is going on in the United States that uh, would be the intellectual capital, the social theory uh, on which these new forces are attacking. Uh, a project I did, this is to putting together many projects, a project I did was called Breaking America because I had done Breaking India so I wanted to figure out what is Breaking America. And, and I found that the, there is an extreme left uh, which is into this wokeism, critical race theory, these kind of things and a reaction to that is the extreme right and there is hardly any middle. And the best of the American presidents were in the middle and the greatness of America was being able to pull all these things together in a balanced way but we have lost that in recent years and that is very tragic. It is almost like a civil war. So what I found is that the critical race theory has its merits in the American context because it basically talks about racism, the oppression of racism, white supremacists oppressing blacks and we have total sympathy for that. However, this has been mapped onto India. This has been now mapped onto India, the view being that the Dalits are the blacks of India and the non-Dalits are the whites of India. So uh, that seems rather strange because the history is very different. I mean the there is oppression here but it is not the same thing as racism. It is a different kind of uh, uh, dynamic, different kind of history and they are not, uh, the, the different groups here are not obviously different like you can tell a black from a white. I mean it is not the same thing. They have lived here for forever. It is not that they came from different continents. They were not brought in from another continent. Uh, so it is not that they are in a strange land. They were brought in in chains. It is not that. They have been here. So this is home for them. So the dynamics are quite different and also when you look at the history of uh, uh, you know Varna which start, uh, our social structure starts as Varna and then there is Jati and only in recent centuries there is caste with the arrival of the Europeans because they, they, they coined the term caste that is the European term and then they uh, solidified and rigidified the hierarchy into a fixed caste system which wasn't there before which was more of a fluid uh, system. Uh, so there is a lot to, lot to discuss about Indian society but it is very difficult to talk with sociolo sociologists, social scientists because they tend to be uh, rooted in what the West has brought here in terms of theory. Uh, maybe they will disagree on content and on examples and so on uh, but the basic ethos that has been brought here to study Indian society, uh, Western sociology is how it is still being done. In fact, you look at the UPSC exam in sociology, you look at the NCRT books in uh, school in sociology and they start talking about from one to the next to the next to the next European thinkers. And the whole litany of European thinkers uh, 
uh, about Indian society, which is so ironic, uh, as if we never had our own social thought, you would think. So that's an issue we have. It's a primary, uh, one of the fundamental issues we have is the application of Western social thought, which continues today. Uh, in all the social sciences departments I go to, it's still the case. Now, uh, when you uh, look at uh, the application of critical race theory to India, it's called critical caste theory. Uh, and, and some Dalit scholars have gone to Harvard and combined with black scholars into a, created a new, new identity called Afro-Dalit. There's a new identity called Afro-Dalit uh, that says that they are the same. Uh, and now there are legal cases like one, fought, uh, one case filed against Cisco in Silicon Valley, uh, uh, accusing them of casteism as a form of and racism. Uh, they cited some uh, Dalit uh, uh, IT worker uh, uh, whose boss is a Brahmin uh, and uh, this guy is stuck. He's called me many times he's looking for help how to fight his legal case. So the lawsuit against the company and against this Brahmin uh, boss that uh, you have casteism. And uh, then these people, these are Indians only fighting these lawsuits. And then this uh, uh, shook up all of the Silicon Valley companies. So these people, the people who put up this lawsuit went to Microsoft and they went to you know Apple and Facebook and all these places uh, where, which they, where they have tens of thousands of Indians and they said you know we will give you caste sensitivity training to make you aware of this menace that you have you don't know about it but you have a menace it's a kind of racism that has come from India and this racism will get you in legal trouble if you're not careful and we can help you so th th these some of these uh, Caste sensitivity workshop trainers charge as much as $75,000 an hour, $75,000 per hour. Now, if you are Microsoft, you will say, okay, now maybe I'll be hire them for a few hours and just get done with it. At least it's almost like hush money, you know, you pay these guys and they leave you alone. Uh, now, I, a lot of people, the reason I got interested in this is I got a lot of calls from Indians know that I'm interested in these kind of things. So, they, a lot of tech people call me from Microsoft. I have group in Microsoft that secretly tell me these, what's going on. And I have a group in Facebook and I have a group in Google. When I went to the Bay Area in uh, October it was, I think, or November, uh, September, October, uh, they hosted a lunch outside the premises so that we can talk very freely and telling me all kind of things what's going on. So they said that when Satya Nadella was sitting in one of these, uh, these uh, caste sensitivity workshops, at the advice of the HR department, he didn't raise any issue, he didn't challenge, he didn't question, he just sat there quietly with poker face, listened to the whole thing for three hours and quietly walked out, said thank you and walked out. And that is exactly what all of us were advised to do, this person said, that if you raise an issue, then they'll say you are in denial and you really are a racist person because you're denying it. So either you, either you keep quiet or you say, I'm guilty, sir, I'm guilty, my family is like this, my grandparents are like this, I'm very guilty and I'm going to fight them and whatnot and then they'll be really happy that they've got one person on their side. So this is how the atmosphere and uh, so then I thought that, you know, we should get the IITians on our side because they have a lot to lose. I mean, IITians are being tagged. Then there's a book called by Ajanta Subramaniam, uh, an Indian, Brahmin, happens to be at Harvard, professor, wrote this book, full big book on uh, the, the, her thesis that IITs 
as, is, as an institution are casteist and were set up to oppress Dalits. And it's sort of like taking the whole theory of how whites set up things, you know, to oppress blacks. So they've copied all that language and all that stuff and tried to make a parallel. And this book has become a bestseller, published by Harvard University Press, you, you know, big, biggest press in the academic world. Uh, and this is viral. They're teaching courses on this in Harvard uh, about the racism in uh, IITs. So I found that the IITs hadn't done a darn thing about it. And you know, I'm not even an IIT and I'm from St. Stephen's College in Physics and I'm defending them. But IITs weren't even defending themselves. They were very scared. So this is a typical reaction that somebody attacks you and you don't want to raise, you know. So the IITs who are all over Silicon Valley did not want to, have not thus far wanted to speak out against this. But privately they're very angry that somebody wrote this book and so on. So they encouraged me. And the new book we have called The Battle for IITs, which is available outside, just 150 page summary of all this. The back is an endorsement by the president of the Pan IIT USA called Ron Gupta. He's the president of Pan. He's given a big endorsement. And we have a video where he's so happy with my work. Uh, and he hosted uh, me at a dinner, private dinner in Washington to say that we're gonna, they're going to help us and support us. Well, we haven't received any support yet, but at least verbally they're on side, on our side. So this is the this is one one part of this whole thing, which is the IIT battle against IIT. But it's bigger than just IIT. Uh, they want to, by the way, put quotas, caste quotas on the H-1B visa. So when you apply for H-1B visa, they'll ask you for caste, and see if there are too many people of one caste going, not enough of the other caste going. They're training the HR departments in the in Silicon Valley uh, to make sure that they hire people of minority Indian Indians are particularly prone to be racists and and uh, you know anti-Muslim and anti-Dalit, and you have to make sure you're hiring enough of those people. So now the Indians are feeling worried that you know we we run away from this type of thing in India to have a meritocracy, but meritocracy is considered a, 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 a kind of a casteist structure. And many of you don't know when you, when you promote and support DEI, I used to, DEI means diversity, which we all like, equity and inclusion. But the word equity does not mean equality. Equity does not mean equality. And we've explained this in this book. Equality means equal opportunities. And some people will perform better than others, but they should all have equal opportunities. Equity means equal outcomes. Not equal opportunities, but equal outcomes. So if you give everybody equal opportunities and then you know people of a certain background come out ahead, that's not equity. To have equity, you need to make sure that you have a certain reservation for uh, the outcome has to be in proportion to the, it has to represent the, uh, it has to reflect the makeup of society. So if you have a certain number of blacks, a certain number of Hispanics, a certain number of Asians, a certain number of whites, then the, the, the people admitted and, and brought into a certain strata of society, certain job category should reflect that. So you want those outcomes and not just equal opportunities. Now this is, the, we've compared this with liberalism. This is not liberalism because liber Martin Luther King never said this kind of thing. He always said that I want color blind, race neutral, 
uh, equal opportunities. I don't think I don't want to replace one bias with another bias. He's very clear on that. The liberalism of John F. Kennedy, the same way. In fact, as recently as Barack Obama, uh, Barack Obama was a liberal in the classical sense. He wanted uh, he wanted to make sure that uh, the uh, opportunities are not blacks are not sort of being there's no reverse discrimination. He didn't ask for reverse discrimination. So this is. This is a, a new thing that has happened as a result of this uh, critical race theory. So critical race theory also has other issues that we, uh, we've taken. One is called cancel culture. I mean, that's a Marxist idea. Uh, Marxist ideas that says the dominant culture should not be given equal right to speak because they'll keep dominating. So you have to cancel them. You have to suppress them and let the oppressed people speak. And the oppressor should sit and listen. So, well, then the question is, how do you decide I'm oppressor or oppressed? So, if I go somewhere and I give my point of view, they'll say you're cancelled out, you know, you're oppressor. So, then I say, but I was oppressed because I was colonized. My culture was colonized for a thousand years and by Mughals and then hundreds of years by the Europeans. So, I'm, oppre I'm oppressed. I'm not oppressor. So, then who gets to decide? Am I oppressor because I'm upper caste oppressing Dalits or am I oppressed? Because I'm, uh, you know, so it's a very difficult, uh, who gets to decide? So there are people who put themselves as the sort of uh, adjudicators who get to decide and they've made these decisions. It's a political kind of a thing. So the, I, the Marxist idea is that world consists of oppressors and oppressed. Marx wanted to have economic oppressors and oppressed, not race. He was very clear. The, the oppressor, oppressor oppressed is not race and not religion. But now it's being applied in that way. So, uh, the Marxist was that you have to dismantle the structures of the oppressor in a revolution uh, to overthrow these structures and dismantle them. There is no such thing as negotiation, there is no such thing as, as uh, uh, upgrading and remodeling and modifying and amending, it's not true. You cannot, uh, uh, you cannot sort of uh, reform uh, the oppressor, you have to dismantle, get rid of them. And so, that kind of a hard, harsh social revolution is now being promoted for uh, the oppressors in India, uh, uh, you know, against the people who are considered the oppressed. So, it's very, very uh, strange when you say uh, that I as a person haven't done anything wrong. Tell me what I did wrong, why should I be responsible for other people? Why should I be responsible for other people? Uh, it, you cannot say you're oppressor by birth and somebody is oppressed by birth, it has to be by merit. It has to be my actions. So, uh, somebody, you know, like Kartikeyan has done so much for people, you cannot say because his lineage and his, his ancestry were of a certain kind, therefore he's going to be paying the price for it. You can't say that. But the argument you get back is that even if you are not in your own individual capacity doing anything wrong as oppressor, the point is that you're enjoying those structures by the very fact that you were born into that. You're, you're enjoying some privileges and therefore the only redemption for you is to acknowledge it and to fight against your ancestry and your heritage. So, which is something which says that we have to disown ourselves. We have to disown who we are. One of the, for those of you who are parents, one of the disturbing consequences of this critical race theory when applied to India has been the attack on family, on Indian families. So, Sura Jengde, which, who is Harvard's poster boy, Indian poster boy that they're promoting to market, to uh, spread all these ideas, 
And by the way, he's at the World Book Fair, big, big celebrity at the Penguin stall. His view is, that is a very co common view of these people, that family structure, Indian family structure, propagates oppressiveness from one generation to the next. So even if you are not trained or taught officially in college or school to be thinking like an oppressor, your parents raised you like that. Your parents, you what you watched, you watched them behave a certain way and you pick it up. So the only remedy is reject your family. So he goes around telling Indian students, he addresses, we have videos of his, he goes around addressing Indian students and says you must reject your families, just reject your families. So here are the families who've made a lot of sacrifice to send their kids to very expensive colleges and pay all the tuition and they are being told that you must reject your families. So this is, so these are some of the fault lines that caused us to uh, begin to take all this uh, seriously. And then we found that uh, some of these uh, theories are coming out of centers in Harvard funded by Indians. Now that's another interesting thing. Uh, Mahindra Humanities Center at Harvard has a director who is a well-known for decades. He's written a whole lot against India as a nation state and he gives art, uh, interviews here and there, very open about it. And so when they have these seminars and conferences, in the back there is a big panel saying Mahindra Humanities Center at Harvard and his card says that. And so it opens doors in India because people think, wow, this Mahindra Humanities Center must be very good. But people don't go in and check what exactly are these guys doing. Then there is the Lakshmi Mittal and Family Institute for South Asia Studies. Lakshmi Mittal and Family Institute for South Asia Studies. Sounds very nice. Lakshmi Mittal gave $50 million to start it and, and many other people have funded added more on top of it and they are among the worst in terms of what they are teaching about India. Then there is at Stanford, there is a Professor Hansen and he's written so much about, you know, Modi's a fascist and democracy is a sham and he's one of those guys who, whose influence then shows up in Wall Street Journal article or Washington Post article or BBC has a series. They're all inspired by these academic people come up with positions which the media thinks are sacrosanct because academic people have more credibility than, and media people listen to that. So the media, all this negativity on, in Indian media, much of it comes from people like Professor Hansen. But Professor Hansen at Stanford, his the job title, you wouldn't believe, is Reliance Dhirubhai Ambani Professor at Stanford. He is the Reliance Dhirubhai Ambani Professor at Stanford. So I've made a whole list of what all he's written, and I'm going next week to Mumbai, and I've asked for an appointment to see Mukesh Ambani. I'd like to give it to him and say, your name, more, more, more da danger than your money is the use of your name, is the use of your father's name. So aren't you concerned? I mean, is, is it that you don't know? Is it that you want this? Or is it that there is the, the price? I mean, what you're getting for it is some seat at the table. Maybe you're getting some prestigious seat at the table because you're part of this very Ivy League place. And so they'll invite you to Davos and then you'll be having a hobnobbing with some big shots around. Is it inferiority complex or what the hell is it? I mean, we ought to know that. So we have, uh, uh, I would say 40% of this book, Snakes in the Ganga, is taking shots at, taking aim at the Indian billionaires who are funding these things. In, we're not accusing them. There's nothing personally insulting anybody, but we are presenting facts so people can decide for themselves. We're just saying in the name of this particular billionaire, these are the things that are being said. 
and so people can decide if they what they want to think of it and if these billionaires think that they are justified all these things are valid then it's fine at least at least they ought to come out it shouldn't be like they are desh bhakt in india but overseas they are doing this to undermine the country that sort of double talk this type of uh, problem has also entered india uh, we have uh, justice chandrachud who is quoting harvard he's quoting all these theories in harvard including critical caste theory and all that he's quoting in lectures and so he's a very prominent he's a harvard product his father was his father and he's he's a, he's proudly propagating these views very openly and that's a, that's something to consider also uh, many of these thoughts many of these ideas are now disciplines taught in ashoka university kriya university godrej culture labs azim prem ji so and we have written we've got separate chapters on each of these guys to, uh, that what when they're teaching social sciences these are some of the things they're teaching and uh, the another aspect to all of this is the whole use of artificial intelligence and data mining that's a field of mine so i understand that when you do data mining it allows you to understand the behavior profile of people their vulnerabilities how to undermine them how to make them fight each other you can you can get communities to fight each other uh, like riots like some of the hong kong riots and the arab spring riots were caused by social media uh, you can suppress and uh, deplatform people that you don't like and you can boost voices that you do like so data mining is a very powerful weapon nowadays uh, to uh, you know to intervene in a society social intervention social infiltration political interventions all of that you can do with more data mining and this data trains your algorithms these artificial intelligence runs on algorithms that keep becoming smarter so the we found that a lot of data mining is happening in india without the knowledge of national security people i talked to without the knowledge of uh, mea people they seem to be not too aware of all this uh, one is uh, ministry of external affairs of france french ministry of external affairs is working with ashoka and they are building they have been building a database on every politician in fact every election from the central government state government municipality to panchayat every election since independence a huge database that no indian has to figure out what are the patterns what are the trends what makes people vote this way what makes what kind of people vote that way uh, what they are vulnerable to what type of messaging they will respond to how do you change their behavior what would be a, a, an argument what would be the threshold that would convert people from this view to that view using the um, the media and messaging as a way to influence people in a democracy uh, this is being done by mining a huge, huge amount of data and why why ashoka is uh, is you being used to do the dirty work for the french ministry of external affairs is an interesting question we have a, another example people are afraid of people are worried about soros george soros in this country and they say that soros is undermining and he set aside a billion dollars to undermine india which he has made statements like that and he hates modi and he hates the uh, indian democracy he thinks is not valid and all but what people don't know is that soros is not as big an enemy as some other people are because soros is in his 80s a bit kind of you know he always was a bit crazy but he's kind of old and he's not tech savvy he's not ai he will doesn't belong to the artificial intelligence generation he belongs to the old school but now we have others uh, a good example we've mentioned we have a whole chapter on is a man called pierre omidyar and he runs the omidyar network uh, 
and it's very active in the south. They have invested $500 million in India in tech startups and more than 200 or so tech startups. A couple thousand entrepreneurs are on, the, uh, on their wavelength because they've invested in them. And, and what they are doing is two things. One is they are doing uh, social justice empowerment. So the ideology they're promoting is their idea of social justice. And anyone who knows social sciences knows that social justice is, depends on whose idea. I mean, the Chinese have an idea of social justice and the Arabs have an idea and the Americans, the French have an idea and we have our idea of social justice. So now this is social justice as per, uh, you know, some other people from, from a foreign country. So this, these uh, social justice uh, training is going on for a large number of tech entrepreneurs in India. And the second thing to note is that these technologies are all to do with gathering big data mining and artificial intelligence. So uh, some of them are mining village data, like one of them is a project to mine 2000 villages in Tamil Nadu and keep track of every little detail of what's going on there. Uh, there are projects where you download their app, the Omidyar app, and as a villager or as anybody, you can, you can bypass the government and apply for wedding license, wedding certification, driver's license, uh, look at some you know, land records. In other words, the old school, old fashioned government bureaucracy is very slow. So to bypass that, this is kind of an e-government, but this e-government is controlled by foreign entity and they are investing to create this kind of e-government. So they will have all the data they will have all the, uh, all the experience of this activity that goes on feeds them. So you would think that this would be considered a national security threat. But when you talk to people, they're saying, you know, what can we do? We are a free society, we are open and all this kind of stuff. You see, so uh, that to me is a, is, a, is a huge threat. And then there are, there are a large, we found that a large number of uh, foreign consultants are working in Niti Aayog and their various ministries, even the policy on data privacy, uh, while it's got the authorship of a lot of Indians, but if you look at their, <laughs> their references in the back, it's, it's a PricewaterhouseCooper New York office report. That's the basis, or McKinsey report. So it's, a, it's clear that those guys are basically behind the scenes writing all this stuff. And the clients are these ministry Babu type people. And then they put their name and the client, is, the client looks good that he's come up with a strategy, but somebody else is pulling the strings, developing that strategy. Now this is, this is going on. And, and, and related to this is the use of indexes. Indexes. Uh, you see, an index is some criteria for evaluating people and ranking them. So when you, if, if I come up with a you know, happiness index, it's my, my criteria. You may have a different happiness index. I may have an index or how I give awards for Oscars. Uh, what is my criteria? What, how do you evaluate? Who are the judges? And in your culture, you may have a different criteria to give awards. It doesn't mean that mine is better. So the, the point I'm making is the index, some of the very powerful indexes are ESG, which stands for Environment, Social Justice, Governance. And these ESG uh, indexes are defined what is good for environment, what is good for social justice, what is good for governance. We all like those words. We all want to be for that. But what are the constituents of those indexes is not decided by people in India. It's decided in Harvard Kennedy School, World Economic Forum, McKinsey and various consulting companies. And they bring these 
indexes and they apply these indexes. So now they've decided that to punish Adani, they're going to lower his ESG index. So that means it will be difficult for him to uh, get money from various places. And so within the ESG, the S, social justice, has within itself another index called DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. So the, the, these consulting companies are certifying DEI officers. So I cannot go become a DEI officer using my own sense of what is diversity and equity. I'm not certified. So I have to go to these places. They will make sure I'm thinking like they are, pass the tests, and then they'll certify. And those who are certified, then the corporates are being encouraged to hire people who've been certified as DEI officers. And those DEI officers are of a certain point of view, a certain ideology, a certain framework, which is not very good for us. And so then there, within the DEI, there is another one, which is called uh, Religious Freedom Business Foundation, RFBF. This is a, a Christian organization. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, related to World, uh, World Economic Forum. Uh, this is, these are, some of these people are part of the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. Now these people have created this thing and they have started creating an index of religious freedom in the business, in corporate. So they are going to, uh, you know, Tata's here and they're going to Reliance and, you know, uh, Godridge and all these places. And they are saying we will like, we would like to, uh, we want to install within the HR department this kind of a religious pluralism because we think pluralism is good for your business and they'll con convince them that this is very good for your business and your rating will be good and we'll coach you and we'll install, we'll install somebody who's trained by us and he will look after it and he'll promote religious pluralism. So they brought me on their board about two years ago uh, because they know that I criticize all these things that are too much Western and not enough input from India and other countries. So they thought maybe they'll buy me out. So they put me on their board and I served on their board. They have something called AI and faith. That's one of their things. And they put me on their board. So I was on the board and they said they have uh, openings for uh, uh, people in various committees. So one of the committees was to look at every religion in the world and build a database of who's who, what are the doctrines, kind of training their algorithms on different religions. So uh, they said we are looking for Hindus. So I, I thought this is a good opportunity to infiltrate. So I got three people from my team. And I said, you go join these three different committees and you don't tell them anything, just listen. Listen what they're doing, keep reporting back, what are they doing? Maybe we'll learn something, at least we know what they're up to. So all of them came back and said they are up to a lot of mischief and they are really basically buying out people, our people, uh, and uh, they are getting into, into the uh, details of uh, you know, various uh, institutions, corporate institutions. So the point I'm making is that there are all these measurement criteria and indexes. We are now in, into that web. We are caught in that net of uh, being measured and looked at and evaluated. And now we are going to be uh, sucking up to these people to make sure that we are okay. Our index rating is good. We can't afford to violate because then they will. it won't be good for our business. So this is how the indexes and foreign consultants are also uh, working together. And then the final, I mean, I've taken a lot of time, but the final uh, problem, I think, which is undermining is our own people, is our own people. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about this government, Hindu people, 
people who are in, in these Hindu organizations, I talk to a lot of them, are either muddled, confused, some of them are, are not even clear, uh, you know, what the implications are of a certain policy, and that is bad. Uh, and I can say a lot more on it because that's a sensitive matter and I have no uh, problem to talk more about these kind of things. But I should stop because I, I think I've covered a large amount of space. Thank you for listening and we can have a discussion. Thank you so much. So Rajivji talked about us being in this caught in this web and how do you detangle yourself. In fact, uh, it looks like it's a task that is formidable. Because just today I read um, somewhere that there is a DEI.AI uh, which has come about. So this is an AI algorithm that is everything about diversity, equity and inclusion. And very soon I'm sure they will train these algorithms to talk about caste as well. Because this DEI algorithm is based on critical race theory and soon you have to feed in uh, critical caste theory. And, uh, and then you know the floodgates will open. The only advantage perhaps is the $75,000 fees that they're paying human beings, maybe that could be reduced when we start using AI, maybe that's the only uh, saving grace. But anyway, uh, I wanted to um, talk about one or two things that we could do right now, which we have committed, errors of commission, if you will, there are lots of errors of omission, but at least one or two things that we've committed that we could perhaps untangle and get out uh, from the government standpoint. For example, the new education policy has opened the floodgates for American or foreign universities to open, um, open their shop campuses uh, in India. And apart from other issues of, you know, pay structure and, you know, they, they have no rules or guidance and they have a free, um, free hand at however they want to administer uh, their uh, campuses. The bigger thing is bringing in liberal arts, Western liberal arts. And as an example to show how poignant, uh, you know, sort of a problem this is, um, I want to talk about Ashoka University, which is, again, funded by Indian billionaires. They are the Harvard wannabes. I'm not making it up. They themselves proudly say that uh, they are the Harvards of India. And if you look at uh, some of the departments uh, in Ashoka <coughs> University, uh, you, will see, you will be appalled at the kind of um, research work they're doing. And, um, and the kind of uh, training that uh, Indian kids are receiving for 10 lakhs a year for four years. So 40 lakhs parents like you are paying for this so-called liberal arts education. So let's look at, um, Rajivji briefly touched upon uh, political data. Let's look at the Trivedi Center for Political Data. It's not even political science. They are so open about it. They're not even teaching you political science. It's called the Trivedi Center of Political Data. They have an ex-election commissioner who's the chairman of this. So he is sort of the conduit between uh, Ashoka University and the government agencies as far as election data is concerned. So essentially, this is, a, this is an operation that's mining uh, election data. Uh, using an election commissioner, a retired election commissioner. Now, Rajivji also mentioned that the French Ministry of External Affairs is actually funding this project. Now, the professors uh, who lead 
this institute um are french and um, you know the name of the person jeffrey jeffrey lot and kureshi kureshi yeah, 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 yeah. kureshi 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 so um so jeffrey lot and there are some other christoph jeffrey lot and some other french uh, social scientists <laughs> are heading this they are also the participants of the breaking um uh, dismantling global hindutva conference uh, that uh, that happened last year in the us which um created a lot of awareness um and you know from the hindu community so essentially it was a conference about breaking hinduism because some of them really said there's no difference between hindutva and hinduism and we really to to get over some of these problems that we face we essentially have to dismantle hinduism and this is you know the one of the pillars of this conference is uh, of course from ashoka university now the french are also meddlesome in other ways uh, in the iit book we show how the french in 2009 10 wanted to study india's engineering education now you would wonder why would they want to do this yeah and uh, so the ministry of external affairs through its uh, centre for social sciences they have csh or something uh, in delhi and through this organization they want to study um the indian engineering education system higher education system and so they bring about uh pierre bourdieu's ideas of a culture as capital so it's a marxist idea of culture as a form of capital and they apply it to india uh by replacing culture with caste and there is born caste as a form of capital and not only do they bring this idea in they train a bunch of scholars in delhi university and i don't know who funds delhi university i'm assuming the government has a role and and start this whole process of the dismantling of uh, indian engineering education and of course ajanta subramaniam comes in later and hijacks the whole project from howard and then um figures out how to apply critical race theory upon caste as capital and then take this scholarship forward so what i'm trying to say is this kind of scholarship has actual impact on the ground because the stakeholders of iit are all affected even the alumni are affected like rajiv ji mentioned people in the tech workforce are all affected by this so this is um the political trivedi center of political data another center that they have is the center for philanthropy uh, so where they study philanthropy <laughs> but they they're doing actually they're like consultants and training students for uh, for organizations like amnesty international and other big ngos so with the fcra <coughs> clamp down by the government uh, so there's a big angst in the ngo community as to how do we bypass this so of course ashoka uses indian scholars to come up with creative solutions and so some of the solutions go like this um they say uh, instead of doing fcra we can do it as fdi like have a foreign direct investment and that's what is umidyar uh, network uh, pro- projects are all they are not non profits they are actually for profits in the name of uh, private public partnerships where they are helping 
uh, a large number of people and doing social work, so-called, but then they're mining data and they're actually for-profit entities. It's easier to be under the radar when you're a private company than when you come through the FCRA route. So even though we clamp down uh, in a reactive way, there are other avenues that open up for NGOs to do what they do. They also suggest, they also worried in this Ashoka Philanthropy uh, Institute that a lot of Indians, when they do philanthropy, they are only interested in services. So services would be, uh, so they, they divide philanthropy in two parts, rights versus services. And all the Indians somehow seem to be into annadanam and to run schools and build toilets and, and girl-child education and things like that. And this is a problem. They don't want people to be giving <clears throat> food and healthcare and education as services. How do we convert that? Because again, FCRA is clamping down. How do we use that funding to, to move from services into human rights? How do we make the Indian donor move from giving services into human rights? So this is a big you know, project with a lot of discussion and how do we change that? So this is what Ashoka University is doing, teaching Indians, Indian scholars <clears throat> on these kinds of issues. Now, the third uh, institute that we cover is the Ashoka um, Gender Studies Department. They, uh, they are called Gender and Sexuality Studies. Ashoka boasts that uh, while India has a lot of gender studies departments, we are the first uh, in the reflection of Harvard to have gender and sexuality studies. So this is the department where they train uh, youngsters at 10 lakhs a year, right? Um, fees, uh, tuition on uh, gender ideas on gender fluidity, how biology is wrong. Um, and uh, they, they bring in so-called outside experts uh, who endorse pornography and they say that pornography should be part of education because it has a lot of, um, you know, a lot of wisdom uh, to teach youngsters uh, how to uh, break normative thinking. Yeah, who, whoever, who decides that pornography is wrong, right? Because this, there's a social order that does that and youngsters should fight this and embrace pornography. And then they have uh, other people, um, you know, there are some groups, uh, which one would consider in the margins, uh, who promote uh, kinky sexual practices. So again, who is to say that, um, you know, what is pleasure and what is pain? And so, so the children, uh, the youngsters should explore these things. So gender and sexuality has nothing to do with safe sex and health and all of that. It is to push boundaries uh, and they endorse risky behavior. And this is what the youth are being exposed to. Not only are the youth in Ashoka, the students exposed to all of this and encouraged, but these so-called experts uh, from Ashoka's gender, gender studies department are somehow inserted into experts in these fields uh, into the uh, NCERT. So the NCERT uh, advisory board on, on gender issues and sexuality issues are these kinds of people who promote these kinds of ideas. And I don't know who voted for them, or I don't know if the public really wants these kinds of things, but that's how they have entered the education system as well, thanks to Ashoka. So this is the gender studies department. Now, and there is, of course, 
China Studies Department, which is also very interesting. Rajivji talked about how most of the social scientists in India, they bring in Western frameworks and they do not know how to think uh, from the Indic view, uh, standpoint. And so they're sort of stuck with these frameworks that they have studied and written papers and they cannot move out of it. Now, China very cleverly has realized this problem. While they reject um, Western social sciences within China, what they have done is uh, to promote China studies outside of China. And Ashoka's China studies department has a healthy partnership with Harvard and Harvard Yingqing Institute, which is based in China. And, and they teach Indian scholars and students how China should be viewed, how China studies should be done in India. And it's just not at Ashoka. Ashoka has loose partnerships with Jadavpur University, Somaya College, Christ College in Bangalore, and has, has established a, a distribution system uh, where they where they bring in scholars from these universe students and scholars through fellowships, uh, through these partnerships, and these scholars are trained at Ashoka and overseas in China, and then brought back to establish China studies departments all over India. That's what that's how China is doing it, and uh, our own scholars are going to be talking about how great China is and teaching uh, people about China studies in India. So this is also a national security issue, uh, which we should, you know, look at. So um, <clears throat> the um, last one that I'd like to talk about is a behavioral sciences uh, department in Ashoka, where people like Gates who fund it, fund this institute, are very concerned about how, um, for example, Indian uh, women uh, do not go to work uh, and this is perhaps because of patriarchy, Hindu patriarchy. So even though um, uh, they have um, they have the ability to work, they don't do it once they have children. And this is of great concern to Bill Gates. And so there are behavioral sciences projects um, that are working on these issues. An example of what they did during the COVID times is that Gates is very upset that some of the people are not taking vaccines and all of that during the COVID crisis pandemic. And so um, they work with the UP government and some other government uh, to, to ensure that people are not only vaccine friendly, but they're probably not taking vaccines because they believe in the idea of karma and karma pala and they leave it to the almighty. And this sort of uh, reliance on, on an almighty and sort of doing sharanagati and saying, let whatever happen, happen, um, needs to be changed. And they need to, be, they need to listen to government authority or other things and not, and not go by um, these kinds of karmic ideas. And how do we change that at a population level? So these are dangerous things that uh, Ashoka is doing, and the government is involved with it. So the the government is also um, sending a lot of bureaucrats to Harvard and other universities uh, to get trained. So as much as we are talking about um, Harvard being the nest of snakes and all of that, the go government of India using your taxpayer money is actually sending 
uh, our bureaucrats to Harvard to educate them on these ideas. And that needs to stop. So these are the, like I said, these are the errors of commission that we can actually stop right away. And they use, um, you know, criteria like QS ratings as to, you know, which bureaucrat gets to what university. Uh, the top ones go to Harvard and then there's a QS rating and it has to be. So the QS rating itself, all these ratings actually mean nothing. If you have a great DEI department in your university and you're, you're, you have you put all your students and staff through these sensitivity trainings, your, your, your um, QS ratings would perhaps be high. So it has nothing to do with the academics per se. But of course, Nuban bureaucracy, nobody really cares. They look at a QS rating, they, they give the funds, they give two years of uh, leave and send the bureaucrat to uh, Harvard. They return and of course, they're parroting the same thing as we have seen um, with our own Chief Justice. So it's no surprise we are actively encouraging these things. Uh, to happen um, and so we should not be surprised when the results uh, that come out of all of this is not favorable for India and is actually breaking uh, India. So with that, um, I just want to close. Uh, there are re recent developments in the US where caste is being weaponized. Um, we saw Seattle uh, City Council, uh, they passed an ordinance saying caste would be protected. And this is a serious matter because it's just not also oh, what we should, there should be no caste discrimination. And all of us would agree that, that there should be no caste discrimination anywhere. But uh, with caste becoming a protected category, anybody can make any claim ag against a person with very less proof. And the only thing is somebody belongs to an oppressor caste and the other is oppressed. Um, just like the Cisco case, the Cisco case also has actually... Um, very little evidence that there was caste um, and that was you know that was the cause for discrimination or whether there was discrimination at all in the first place so these have serious consequences for Hindus and this Seattle is the first uh, city and the, it's going to be rolled out into other cities and it's all going to come home to roost uh, wherever you are if you're in the education system your children are going to get brainwashed into all of this if you're in the workforce you have ESG and DEI and all of that if you're in the government you have you know the similar uh, sensitivity training um, so there's actually no escape um, unless you just hide in some uh, you know self-sustaining uh, rabbit hole somewhere there's really no uh, no escaping and we we have no one to blame except ourselves uh, as rajivji's last point you know about the hindus you know so we have no one to blame but ourselves we've tried to give enough warning and sounded alarm bells but uh, we are where we are because of our own doing we really cannot blame anybody fascinating facts have been brought up I would like to thank uh, uh, both Rajiv and uh, Vijay for uh, reiterating very effectively, very revealingly, some of the things known, many things not known. And in fact, these things the government, as you rightly said, both of you have uh, said, are aware of it. But the implications of it, whether they are aware or not, is not, I'm not sure about it. But the fact is that they're, as you yourself mentioned, they're aware of it. In fact, about the foreign agencies, uh, foreign consulting agencies, there's more to dig 
in my forthcoming book uh, on the Indian uh, independence research, which is is already in the press, reveals these foreign agencies how they are being allowed by the ministers themselves into their offices. The data is at their disposal, and the kind of a special treatment being given to them even today.